Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to The Race Car on Sin 19.7 every Sunday at 3 p.m. We talk politics, current affairs, pop culture with a twist. Yes, you're listening to The Race Car on Sin 90.7 and I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this afternoon's show. And uh, before we begin, we're going to make a little acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respects to their elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded, and through the co- uh, process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide, they began over two centuries ago, and continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, public culture, with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we look at racial fetishism. Are they Okay. Unpack the attempted border force visa checks, discard the Redfern Ten Embassy court case and the history behind the Ten Embassies in Australia, and finish with our featured discussion on Western beauty standards. Don't forget, get involved in all the discussion by texting on zero two seven seven six seven seven six seven or tweet us using our Twitter handle at the race card. We got one finally, so follow us, tweet us, and get get busy. All right. So uh, my co-host for this week's uh, this weekend show are. Hold on for a second. Let me just get their mics on. Uh, yeah, a little bit slack for me. And uh, Poppy Perot. And uh, hold on for a moment. I just need to find out which mic Amina has. And I found that out. And who are you? I'm Amina. Even though I just said your name. But anyway. <laughs> oh, actually, is your mic working? Can you? Can um, you? I don't. I yeah. think I can hear myself. Yeah, yeah, your mic is working, sorry. You know, community radio, we make a few mistakes, but anyway. Um, you know, we've been examining a topic every week so far, whether it be what is racism, what is white privilege, and cultural appropriation, and Australian identity. This t- this week, we tackle racial fetishisms. And uh, Poppy and I walked down the streets of Melbourne to find out what some of our, you know, Melbourne CBD onlookers thought about what racial fetishisms are and who they have as preferences. So we're going to be playing that in just a moment, but just before we do, Poppy, what do you think of uh, some of the people we spoke to? Um, I thought they were all fairly honest, a lot of them. Um, There were definitely some people who were very blunt about the preferences they had, and I think there were some that were bordering on a little bit micro-grenishy, but um, is that even a word? I don't think so. But yeah, I think people were put on the spot, and I think some were afraid to say, the, like, you know, what they really thought, but others, um, I really appreciated their honesty, whether, you know, whether I, we agreed, like, I mean, whether we thought it was a nice thing that they were saying or not. All right, we're going to be playing our track right now on, you know, what are racial fetishisms. If you want to uh, tell us what you think, send us a text at zero four, uh, oh, now I need to look at my paper, sorry, at zero four. Uh, uh, 0427767767 or tweet us using our handle the race card here is what we found on the streets I don't know I don't date white guys which is really weird but like it's just like 
it's not necessarily a decision I made, it's just something that just sort of came and like I've noticed a pattern I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> I like the Australian people here. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I like the Australian people. But maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection already there. Not most people have like grandparents come from Europe and stuff. So, they have something more yeah. to talk about. Do you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> what, what, would, what are they if you're feeling comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe, people from Europe or Aussie people, yeah. Or if they at least speak properly English or, yeah, if they look Asian but they, they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie, then it's a bit, a bit more comfortable. <laughs> what kind of thing we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first? Uh, I don't believe in religions, but anyway, I mean that the background of the religions is important because, for example, a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish. Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, an Iranian cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know. Actually, so the nationality, for example, an Iranian cannot uh, marry to, for example, I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I wish. This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card. Yes, you're listening to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM. And I'm Ahmed Yusuf, your host for this weekend show. That was a little bit of what we found on the streets of Melbourne and uh, Poppy. So um, what what did you what you think about? Oh no, no, she, I'm not going to go to you, Poppy. I'm going to oh, Poppy. I'm going to go to Amina. Those were some interesting responses. You know, are racial fetishes, fetishisms okay? Um, short answer is no, because racial fetish fetishization is basically the sexual objectification of a marginalized people by virtue of their categorical race. And in turn, that furthers their marginalization, furthers their stereotypical expectations. And racial fetishization is not love. It is not a personal preference unless your personal preference is racism and a desire to reduce people to parts. And calling out racial fetishization is not kink shaming for sure. People of color aren't kinks; they're people. Oh, some so she's she's throwing down some some gauntlets on you, people who fetishize people of color, and and I guess uh, I guess Poppy, you know, people are gonna say, hey, you know, I like X ethnic group or racial group. Look, you know, that that's just how I like them. You know, I like if particular people look a certain way. You know, are we are we policing the way people? like people? No, it's definitely not about policing and it's not about telling people what preferences they have and they can't have. You have to ask yourself, I don't know, some simple questions when you are attracted to someone who may, you know, a person of colour. Like, when you don't treat them like human beings, that's when you're stepping over the line. So ask yourself, why am I attracted to this individual person or an individual group of people? Am I generalising them? 
Am I attracted to them because of what I saw in a movie or a television or even a pornography? Am I attracted to them based on common stereotypes? And if you answer to any of those, I think then yes, you are racially fetishizing them. I remember we were talking、um, a little bit off air.、Um, yeah, we do talk off air, by the way. <laughs>、uh, so、uh, about. Some of your experiences, where when you've been racially fetishized,、um, do you want do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, of course. I'm very open about this, and I feel like I have to be because it, you know, it really taught it taught me a lot of things, but it also it really educates other people. I had an incident earlier this year where I was racially f- fetishized, and I had no clue about it, and. And it really, when I found out, it actually really did hurt me because I had felt dehumanized. I had felt like that I had been stripped of my identity. Like there are so many facets to my being that is not just my skin color or my ethnicity, but I had just been solely reduced to this, and that really, that really hurt. And even having to explain it to people. I've been shamed for it, and thinking, you know, it's not a big deal. You shouldn't worry about it too much. But it, it does worry about you because, you know, my race is a part of my identity, and it affects me in my day-to-day life. So when, but when I'm reduced to this and, not, and nothing else, then, you know, I can't go. I can't go on. I guess. Definitely, definitely. And you know, we're, we're going to cut that conversation a little bit short. We're going to play a little bit of music break. And、uh, what we got in store for you? We played a bit of Sovereign tracks last week, and we liked them so much. We're going to be playing "Walking on Flames" by Black Indie. So、uh, hopefully you enjoy that track. We've got in store for you in just a moment. New Zealand is having a vote at the end of the year about changing their flag.、Um, yeah. Would you support the idea of Australia changing their flag?、Uh, depends to what. If it was the Nazi flag, probably not.、Um, I don't know. How does one choose what the flag will be? I'm all for change, but I'd like to know what it's changing to first.、Yeah. But as a concept, the idea of changing a flag. Do you have any issues with the current flag? Or、um, no, but it does have tied to the monarchy. Like if New Zealand doesn't wish to be tied to the monarchy, and if we don't wish to be tied to the monarchy. Monarchy is a symbol of old times, dead times. We're trying to progress. But it's the New Zealand flag.、So、they change it to like include Maori tradition. Yeah, I don't feel particularly attached to the Australian flag. So yeah, I think I'd be pro changing it. Yeah, or like at least the idea of there being an open debate about it. I think that's important.、Um, and who knows what it would be like? It's not particularly inclusive. I think of all of Australia necessarily. Absolutely. How come? Well, get rid of the Union Jack.、Um, and I mean, I guess the argument some people put forward in New Zealand is that,、um, and in Australia as well, is that it's a tradition, culture, those kind of things. Yes, but it also means a lot more than that.、It、means that you're tied to the UK, and then you're not an independent sovereignty, and that you're not an independent country. So it's symbolic. I don't know. Honestly, I've not really thought about it that much, but I feel if it's something people are feeling really strongly about, then it's something we should be discussing. So if there's been enough people kind of going, I don't know, talking about this kind of thing, saying that we should be changing the flag, then I think it needs to be acknowledged that there are people out there saying that this needs to be done.、And、I think that's been around for a while. There's always been those kind of、um, people talking about that, but.、Uh, Yeah, yeah. Me personally, I don't really feel strongly about it one way or the other. But if it's important to other people, then it's something that needs to be discussed.、So. If you had to vote to change it or keep it the same, I don't know. Have to think about it more. Sorry.、Um, there's, a, there's a list of,、uh, of flags that people、oh, have created、cool. and proposed.、Um, do any of them jump out at you, or ones you might 
be interested in if you had to choose one. If I had to choose one, I really like number one. I think it looks pretty cool. It's, um, just for those listening, number one's kind of a, I guess, a boomerang on the left hand side with a star, the Southern Cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I'd like, like, a mixture. If you had the correct, if you had the kangaroo on top of the boomerang with the star, that'd be kind of sick. All, like, all of the above. Yeah, if we just put them all together in one big collage. Probably number three. Um, so for this, this number three is, is essentially the, the bottom half of the Aboriginal flag with uh, blue on top and the Southern Cross stars. What, why that one? Why did that one jump out? Well, because it incorporates the Aboriginal flag, but sort of keeps to the traditions of what they actually are, as well as the Australian flag. Um, and instead of having it in the top left corner, like we do have the Union Jack, um, um, you know, it sort of demotes that, you know, in our flag, it demotes that Britain is there, but it's not really important. And if you put the Aborigine flag up there, then it would kind of denote the same thing. Perhaps the one with the kangaroo, I think. Yeah. People would recognise it. It's got the stars that people would recognise. I think most people would know what it was. Hmm. Out of just general aesthetics, I like the kangaroo one. <laughs> um, but in terms of meaning and things like that, I guess I'd have to do my research and see what I feel most, like, most connected to. Um, but I think it would be a really, like, beneficial, um, step to include, um, like, Indigenous Australians is a part of our flag and representing that. This is Amir Rahman, and you're listening to The Race Card. Oh, now I'm forgetting the song. No, I don't. It's uh, Walking on Flames. That was, that was a really nice track from Sovereign Tracks. If you want to find them, you can find them on SoundCloud and uh, just type in Sovereign Tracks. There's a number of great artists. That was from Black Indie, a group called Black Indie, and their song... Walking on Flames. And now we're going to move on to our next segment, and that is the week that was. What's happened in the week that we find is, you know, what's, what's been interesting? We're going to find out right now, and we're going to tell you in just a second. That's me flipping through a little bit of paper, but anyway, I'm a bit disorganized today. Um, remember, you're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all the discussions by taking, uh, texting in on 027-767-767, or tweet us using our Twitter handle at the race card. And talk about Twitter handles, Amina, still waiting for that Twitter handle. We know we're, mm. we're gonna be talking about this throughout the se- throughout all the season. Right. Alright. Yeah. Anyway, um so you know we're gonna be now going to our week that was do you all have your papers in check? Well if you didn't, Border Force and the transport officers would be checking on you this week or they would have. Um and why would they be checking on you um, if you present any antisocial behaviour to prevent, obviously, visa fraud? They, the name of this mission: Operation Fortitude. I don't know. I don't know about you. Um, I mean, uh, that sounds a bit iffy. What do you think? Uh, well, the first thing that came to my mind actually was my memories of my life in Saudi Arabia, where I lived for 18 years as a child. And uh, we had to carry residency permits with us, um, or we would be fined exorbitantly. 
and three strikes and you're deported essentially, especially if you're a resident, permanent resident or whatever resident that you are. And um, the only thing is Saudi Arabia is an almost absolute monarchy and a dictatorial regime. And uh, on top of that, this kind of policing of, you know, visas and whatnot, it fosters a culture of racial profiling. Who gets asked and who doesn't? So, you know, you need to ponder on that for a little bit. Definitely. Like, I don't know. I was I was taken aback when I first heard about this. And um, and straight after, there was an impromptu uh, protest in the city um, and, and causing a bit of a, I guess, traffic delay and and this is, um, I guess, a bit of, of audio we were able to, to get from a friend of ours uh, who was at that uh, protest. Oh, sorry, that was a bit of an incident with me. Let me just uh, fix that for a moment and we'll get that audio up of what happened at that protest in just a moment. <laughs> And that was what happened on Friday. There was a bit of, you know, there was showing of solidarity against um, racial profiling. And Poppy, what what do you what do you make of, um, I guess, the Australian public coming out in force? Well, I think um, there was a huge backlash against um, Operation Fortitude, and I saw that as a positive. People were very quick to sort of, I guess be a little critical of it and see the issues that it had. Um, the, I wasn't there at the protests myself, and I think for an impromptu protest, it was quite quite a big turnout. But um, the thing that struck me was I, like, you know, I think it was a lot of, like, it, it was people from d- lots of different, you know, lots of different races, not just, it was people of colour, it was Australians as well, it was everyone, I don't know, banding together to sort of um, unite against Operation Fortitude. Um, there were some posts circulating on social media, though, of that they were still... Um, you know, it's not confirmed. It's it's all of a bit su- like it's all suspicion at this point that Operation Fortitude did go ahead, but they were disguised as uh, different officers. Just even just even going by that, this idea and calling your operation Operation Fortitude, um, it seems a bit like if I was a, an oppressive government trying to racially profile certain groups of people, I wouldn't be so obvious with, you know, m- the targeting of my my name. And a lot of people said. Even the even the prime minister himself, Tony Abbott, captain of Team Australia, um, said, "If you didn't see what I just did, I gestured up in the air, saluting my captain. Oh, captain, my captain." But anyway, I mean, why do you think the name came out? What, what was, I guess, why was it so obvious in terms of the way they've kind of made that imagery? When you hear the the, the name Operation Fortitude, you automatically think, "What this really strange kind of like." regime, oppressive regime? Well, for me, it has very strange connotations because it sounds like um, sounds like a TV show gone bad. <laughs> so for me, it just sounds like a nightmare, essentially. Um, I'm not too sure about the background of the, of the name Fortitude or if there's any legacy behind that. But for me, it sounds like a term that is probably used to scare people because it does not sound like a very friendly term. It does not sound like operation. We're just checking if you're okay to be here. It's it's very. Um, I mean, even that sounds really sus. But <laughs> I think fortitude has very strange um, connotations. 
Might I add, I think it's quite cheesy in a way. It sounds a bit comical, and um, I don't know, it's bordering on, like, I guess, like, comic patriotism. Like, that's what I thought when I first heard of it. Because the Australian government, at least, uh, Tony Abbott has shown this propensity to, to actually go on those patriotic kind of, yeah. you know, those Team Australia buzzwords and, and things like that. Do you think it just harks back to that? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, like I, I don't know. I feel like it appeals to a certain type of. I don't know. There are certain people who will instantly see those words and identify with it. And I know if, like, there, I reckon there are a lot of people who are quite blasé to the entire, um, to the entire thing. I mean, to Operation Fortitude. I mean, if they, if they don't feel like they're going to be threatened, then I guess there's a sense of apathy there. Definitely. Um, we're going to quickly uh, play a little bit of a. Um, a chat that I had with the Vice President of Liberty Victoria, Jesse Taylor, about those proposed checks. Um, Liberty Victoria, a group that um, you know, discussed liberty in Victoria. <laughs> no, um, she's a lawyer and discussed a bit of the legality when it came to Operation Fortitude and how it was made possible. And it was, yeah, we'll just hear what she had to say. Jesse Taylor, the Vice President of Liberty Victoria, on the line. Hi, Jesse. Hi, how are you going? I'm good. Uh, good. After the protests, Australians Australians took the street against the border force checks and reports have come in since that they've been cancelled. What do you think that says about the proposed visa checks? Well, I, I think it says a lot. It says, it says, first of all, that Melbourne's not a town that you can mess with in terms of, um, you know, randomly stopping people and, and interrogating them about uh, who they are, what they're doing there and whether they have a valid visa. Um, I think it's really exciting that the public um, outcry against this has had such a swift and such a dramatic resp- uh, um, uh, effect in having these, these checks cancelled. Um, Police have always had stop-and-search powers if they have a reasonable suspicion that someone's up to no good. But immigration officials having um, having the same powers really starts to raise issues about racial profiling and how are they going to develop a reasonable suspicion that a person is a non-citizen. So I think it was particularly the addition of the, the, the immigration and border force aspect of these searches that led to such an, an enormous public outcry. From a legal uh, point of view, how were these powers even able to, to be implemented for however long they were? Well, look, I mean, they, they are pretty standard powers for police um, to be able to stop someone if they, if you know, obviously the police have the power to stop you. Um, uh, but as I said, where immigration becomes involved, um, all, all that they need is a reasonable suspicion that, is a, that a person is not a citizen of Australia um, and at that point, that person is then lawfully required to prove that they are a lawful non-citizen. So they're either a citizen or they have a visa, basically. Um, and the implementation of that power and the exercise of that power is really, really rife for abuse. And it's really, really rife for, um, for use as an intimidatory tactic by border force against you know, migrant populations or, frankly, anyone who does not look like a white Australian. So um, that that was really problematic, but unfortunately it is a power that exists in the Act. So I think it was the kind of arrogance and the attitude that the, this operation was being spoken about with um, that, that really caused... Uh, I'm Gary Foley, and you're listening to The Race Card. Um, yeah, we're going to... Uh 
now move on to our next topic in the week that was and it's been a big week for the Redfern 10 Embassy and our uh, panellist Tarnin Onus williams uh, took to uh, examining that topic going to let Tarnin do the rest of the talking in just a moment she uh, she can't make it this, uh, this week because she has some prior uh, engagements but she took the time to make some uh, she had an interview with uh, the, the, the daughter of the person that opened up the Redfern 10 Embassy, Lorna Munro, but also here is what she had to say about the tent, in, in, uh, tent Embassy, but I'm struggling to find her piece. Uh, but anyway, up oh, there, found it. Here is what she had to say. About the Redfern Aboriginal Tent Embassy, but I guess I just want to talk about the history of uh, the Aboriginal Tent Embassies in general. So the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, the first one was set up in Canberra at the front of the now old Parliament House in 1972 after the 1967 referendum after Aboriginal people were allowed to vote or um, were considered the human. So, um, but yeah, so after the first Aboriginal Tent Embassy, there was Redfern in Sydney and Brisbane, in Portland, Victoria, in Perth, at Madagarup. And I just want to acknowledge that most of these 10 embassies were set up by Aboriginal women. Um, Aboriginal women have been at the forefront for a very long time, and I guess that's just the society we live in, is that men are continuously you know, written in history books when women are always at the forefront. Um, but I guess this week... We just want to speak about Redfern Aboriginal Ten Embassy because that's been um, what's been in the news uh, the last week, in the last couple of days. And this week we have Lorna Munro, whose mum is the founder of the Redfern Aboriginal Ten Embassy, also known as Rate, and her mum is Auntie Jenny Munro. But Lorna has been all, is an Aboriginal activist as well and has been fighting. With her mum at so the this block. week we've seen in the media about the Redfern Aboriginal Ten Embassy, and I just wanted to know if you could give a bit of a background because you, your like you and your mum have been like at the forefront of it, and I just want to know the history of the Redfern Aboriginal Ten Embassy and why your mum set it up. Well, um, mum set it up to try and. Um for some transparency and accountability with the Aboriginal Housing Company. There's some um, inappropriate things, dealings that have been happening in the last couple of years um, and, you know, the, the whole demolition of the block happened over seven years. Um, you know, taking the houses uh, down bit by bit. It was a long process. A lot of the dysfunction in the area, um, you know, happened within um, that time as well and was used as the catalyst to get rid of company has moved very far away from what it was originally designed to do um, and I think that you know if if Aboriginal community controlled organizations aren't really being um, you know inclusive with the community um, you know and not reflecting the cultural and community um, values and obligations then it shouldn't really be calling itself an Aboriginal organization and especially um, you know, not having Aboriginal employees and things like that there. So there's a lot of things, there's a lot of questions that have, you know, popped up over the last few years. Um, the Redfern 10 Embassy was set up as all embassies are set up 
um, to reclaim, um, uh, you know, a space, usually um, in places where, you know, there aren't safe spaces for Aboriginal people to gather and they're being pushed out and things like that. You know, why people have been putting fences up and keeping us off our land for a very long time. It's just unfortunate that at this moment it's Aboriginal people that are doing it to Aboriginal people. Um, so the 10 Embassy... Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Like other embassies um, function the way an embassy should. Um, you know, it's somewhere where you can go for refuge if you need to. It's somewhere where you can go to seek information and to find people and things like that. Um, the 10 Embassy very much um, here in this community, you know, that I've grown up in, this is Redfern, Waterloo, um, there's been ongoing gentrification for the last 20 years. And I think that with the Olympic Games, there was a huge push to get rid of the Aboriginal community because we're the only thing physically, that's in between the airport and the city. Yeah, and how long has the 10 Embassy been there for? The 10 Embassy now, it's been there for a year and a half. It was previously there for a few months. But I just want to know some of the programs and, you know, all the things that you guys have done up there. Like, it's so good. Um, yeah, well, it's all been grassroots initiatives. Um, and, you know... It's the only space that we have been able to self-determine what we need, and that's usually what happens in, in um, uh, you know, at an embassy. It's um, it's an assertion of our of our rights to land and to resources and things like that. You know, so if they're not being offered, then we have to create them. And it's uh, you know, institutions have excluded us for the last 227 years, so it's about time we start building our own. And did you want to talk about what happened this week? Because I know on Tuesday, your mum and all you fellas up there went to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And did you want to talk about what happened on Tuesday? You know, we've taken an Aboriginal argument, the argument of sovereignty never being seen in the fact that we've never, ever given permission to anyone to move us off our land. Um, you know, we're going in a, into a system, um, which is the Supreme Court, which is built up on the denial of our rights, you know? So it's kind of like doomed to, to begin with. Um, they've handed possession back uh, to Mickey Mundine and the Aboriginal Housing Company, um, and pretty much, you know, they've asserted their white laws trespassing laws um, over um, the Aboriginal 10 Embassy. But there's also been other talks and things like that. There's been a, a deal made with the federal government um, all due to, um, you know, my mum's hard work and, and um, the embassy and, and what it's been there for. You know, and that deal was to commit to um, a $5 million grant mm-hmm. uh, to provide Aboriginal housing, whereas in the past, Aboriginal Housing Company have claimed that 
They need to build the commercial development and the student housing to make money to make. And so the good thing that's come out of this is that there is now pressure coming from other areas and not just people like my mum and the 10 Embassy on the Aboriginal housing company to keep them accountable and to keep them, um, you know, having Aboriginal people living on that land a priority and keeping the Aboriginal presence in the area. You're listening to The Race God on Sin 90.7 FM and that was Lorna Munro talking to our panellist Tarnine Onis-Williams who cannot make it this week um, and uh, talking about the Redfern 10 Embassy. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break right now and uh, actually no, before we do take a break let's talk about what, about the Redfern 10 Embassy. I've personally um, been there and spent some time there with the people. It was it was a very it was a very great it was a good place to be there was um they were saying there was an act of sovereignty and then you can see that quite plainly with the imagery uh, literally like the the name written sovereignty um and it seemed like a place where indigenous people from the community can can seek refuge at times of of trouble and and in need of um communicating with communion and that is a i guess a vital aspect of humanity in general yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold going on. I think uh, the residents of the area, whether they're Indigenous or not Indigenous, really, like, lo- like I don't know, love it, lo- love it. And they, they really, um, it adds a bit of, co- I don't know, like a bit of colour and vibrance to the community. It's a huge part of the identity, not just as, um, in, you know, as for the Indigenous community, but for the whole community. I know there's been a lot of... Um, there's been a lot of activists going to the Redfern 10 Embassy in solidarity with in the Indigenous community. So what you say yeah, means a lot, I think, to, I guess, people in that area. Um, and we're going to take a Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know, no. Haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. All right. So now five seconds. Five seconds. Good for it. All right. So, what does the term white privilege mean to you? Yeah. What does what? White privilege. Uh, there is not such a thing. Man. Not for me. Not for you. No, man. We are all the same. That's uh, all. We bodies red. We are all the same. Oh, brothers. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh, well, privilege for white people, I guess. Yeah, so is this like racism kind of stuff? What does it mean to you? Well, I guess Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here, I mean we are talking about the local white Australian, they're having you know, having access to welfare, housing and everything that is um, being state provided, I assume What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um, wow that's a, <clears throat> that's a pretty hard hitting question um, I suppose White privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas 
when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. I'm Luke from Indigenous X, and you're listening to The Race Card. You're listening to Sin 90.7, and we are The Race Card, and we can get involved in all the discussions on the show by uh, tweeting us at The Race Card on Twitter or texting in on 027-767-767. Get in all the discussions. We're on Twitter. Use us. Find us at The Race Card. All right, but now we're going to be moving on to our featured discussion this week, Western beauty standards. What are what are beauty standards and how harmful are they when it comes to people who don't fit the norm? I mean, there's more. Right. So when we're often told, um, we're, we're told beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but as I like to say, beauty standards are not. Um, they're not as arbitrary as we imagine. And to talk about this um, a little bit more, I spoke to Jerai Khan, who is from Walk That Look. She actually founded that um, autonomous group online, and she's also an admin for Pinups of Color on Facebook. Take it away. Yes, take it away. Khan is a Perth-based makeup artist and hairstylist, a student of criminology at ECU, and a strong advocate for diversity in the media and arts. She's also known as Lila Shalimar in pinup circles and is the founder of Facebook group Walk That Look, an autonomous space for women of color to discuss beauty and aesthetics. She's also an admin of Pinups of Color, a global Facebook platform that aims to showcase and celebrate women of color in the pinup community. Jire, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for speaking to us. So Jire, tell me, why are autonomous groups for women of color to discuss beauty necessary? I guess before I start, I'd like to define what an autonomous space is. So an autonomous space is one where members of a particular marginalized group, in our case women of color, can meet, engage, and discuss issues surrounding their experience without pandering to an external gaze. For women of color, this is an exceptionally important thing because the world at large does not provide enough opportunity for us to comfortably and openly discuss our oppressions, both as women and as people of color. So in online spaces such as Walk That Look and Pinups of Color, the objective is two-tiered for us. Firstly, we aim to provide women of color with positive reinforcement and role models when it comes to beauty standards. And secondly, we aim to be an online resource and sounding board for women of color. And so tell us, how, does these, how do these spaces empower women of color? And what do you say to those people who think that these kind of groups are divisive and that they're discriminatory to white people, for example? Well, the way I see it, autonomous spaces provide women of color somewhere where we can be ourselves unashamedly and unapologetically, and they allow us to question what the world at large has told us about ourselves. See, we're constantly in a mode of self-discovery in these spaces, because when the sounds of Anglo supremacy and white beauty standards are shut out of a space, a certain quiet descends and allows us time and space to reflect upon ourselves and to see ourselves clearly for the first time. Um, when I told some of my left-leaning white feminist friends that I wanted to start a group exclusively for women of color to discuss beauty stuff, they just shrugged it off and called it first-world problems, and they said, 
you know, they're bigger fish to fry when you want to dismantle a patriarchy. That beauty, in any way, is established by a patriarchy, and it was just a divide-and-conquer trap wow. um, set up by the patriarchy. And at first I believed them, and it took me a long while to set up Walk That Look because, you know, I talked to other women of color um, at conferences and stuff, and they said, you know, they voiced it very openly that they didn't know how to feel about the beauty industry, that there was nothing out there for them. There was nowhere where they could come together and talk to other women about their problems, you know, things like finding a foundation color or what to do with their hair. And it was only at these conferences that we could actually come together and talk. And I thought, you know, in the day of technology where you have Facebook groups, wouldn't it be great to have a group like that where we could all from across Australia and across the pond in America, Canada, other countries, um, talk to each other about our needs and what works for us. So that's how this group came to be. Mm. And it's so important that we have it because, I mean, if you look how Australia is going, the products that that are sold here, they seldom meet the needs of women of color. You can hardly find foundations that aren't too pink. You can hardly find tights in darker skin colors. You can't find hair products for black hair. You can't go to a hairdresser that will know what to do before turning you away from their chair. It's just this kind of the message is sends to women of color is that we aren't worth as thought by the beauty industry, that we are all the same shade of non white, that we aren't the norm. And over time this feeling just compounds and eats away at you and it's pretty toxic and harmful because it makes you doubt your own self and your own beauty. Definitely. I mean, I shouldn't have to have anxiety when I go to a makeup counter and ask for a foundation that matches me. I shouldn't have a makeup artist make me feel like my skin is inconvenient for them to match to. My friends shouldn't have to go to a hairdresser and hear them saying, like, hear them making fun of her natural hair texture um, or referring to it constantly as dry or like, or like straw, which is really horrible to think about. And, you know, when I go to a Daisy grocery store, I shouldn't be seeing tubes upon tubes of fair and lovely skin bleach. And my sister shouldn't have to wear green contact lenses every day when she goes to work because she somehow believes that green eyes make her more attractive than her brown eyes. It's just, over time, it really eats away at you. I think what is really important and what autonomous spaces serve to do is to allow us somewhere where we can vent our concerns, where we can talk about how we feel, how we're made to feel, because this isn't going to go away overnight. We aren't just going to wake up one morning liking ourselves. Beauty has traditionally been structurally exclusive and determined by power. Do we redefine beauty? Are we? Do we want to expand it, or do we want to dismantle it altogether? I think it's important for us as women of color to address beauty as a structure. And with any structure, it's part of the greater hierarchy. The standards are set by people who have power. And the people with power might not necessarily look at us and go, well, these people belong in that structure on the apex or the top. We need to see it for what it is. And there's no shame in putting on makeup or getting your hair done and feeling good about yourself. I think what's important is that we have the ability to do that, that we have, we have options to do that, that we aren't just shut out by the, lar- the beauty world at large, that we are given visibility. I'm so tired of there being so few representations of brown women in the media, of black women in the media, of Asian women in the media. There's so little. And when we do get the one odd model, they're like, well, there we go. We've got representation now. We have little girls who still, you know, they want their hair straightened and they're only 
four or five, I have a friend whose niece asks to get her very curly hair straightened, and it obviously comes from somewhere where there's shame in having curly hair. I have cousins who started bleaching their skin when they were like 11 or 12, or don't go out in the sun because they don't want to be dark. Things like beauty, you know, people shove it aside and go, oh, but it's only beauty, it's nothing important, there are wars going out there, right. there there's famines and stuff. Yeah. But this is a war. This is an internal war. This is a war we fight with ourselves every day. Mm-hmm. Where we, like Michael Melkmeck says, you fight it against yourself. You are taught that you aren't worthy of loving yourself. And like my mom used to say, if you don't, like no one can give you the love that you don't have for yourself. And that's so important. So you've got to change up what constitutes beautiful. And it shouldn't always be milky skin or very thin, streamlined noses or big big blue eyes or straight blonde hair, there should be more variety in it. There should be there should be more variety. That's what Dura Khan thinks. And you're listening to The Race Card on Sin 90.7. Remember, you can get involved in the discussion by tweeting us at The Race Card. So tweet us at The Race Card. And, uh, I mean, that was an interesting discussion about beauty and, and how she said it is a war because you're not seeing yourself represented in the media, um, in anything, really. Right. Um, and I think it's also important to um, keep in mind that for a woman of color to exist in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy where beauty is an expectation for women particularly, it is devastating to be labeled ugly and to be told that you're ugly, that you're not worth it, you're an afterthought, you're not someone worth thinking about. And that um, per- that kind of like manifests in the products that are available, as Jerry mentioned, the fact that you can't get the foundations that you want. When we say nude lipstick, what the hell is that? It does not suit me. That makes me look washed out. And um, yeah, so I think those are really important um, things that need to be taken in consideration, particularly for women of color who experience both, you know, racialized sexism and sexualized racism. Um, I guess Poppy and maybe Ahmed. Um, the thing that came to my mind was, you know, when we talk about tanning and skin lightening, often they are drawn as comparisons by people who, you know, they downplay the effects of colorism, which we can talk about in this segment as well. What do you guys think? I mean, I am... I think they're two completely di- different things. Like, I, I think tan, like, I mean, tanning doesn't have the same harmful effects as skin lightening. Um, I mean, obviously, it's bad. F- it's it's very it has adverse adverse um health effects. But it also um I don't know. Like, it it affects it, it affects the standards in I don't know in POC communities. You, you know, and um I feel it it makes it worse when you're when you're a woman of color when you're getting you know I guess the racism from you know, from like from the West, but also from your own people. That's, I think, when it really hits it hard. And also, the thing about tanning, um, it, it it's the kind of thing where, hey, um, I can I can get tanned for the summer, but it's a fashionable thing. Me mm-hmm. having it, um, a, a few shades darker skin is fashionable because it's a temporary thing. Right. It's a fad that you can just a, throw away. Right. Like, like for example, I can't like wash away. The, the blackness in my skin or what have you, you know, I can't get, if I want to get, it's, it's not a fashionable thing, there's nothing I can change. So that temporariness, I feel, is is that kind of fashionable thing. It becomes in a stage where your kind of, your aesthetic is, um, is fashionable because it's 
it's having a trial in this. Oh, I'm, I'm I can be brown or black this month. I've, I've seen people actually yeah. say that. So it's it's this kind of temporary basis. But um, you know, I th- I think I mean you have another interview that yep. we should be playing. Yeah, definitely. And just on that, I think it's important for people to realize that you know when women of color um, when they're asked to be lightened, they're you know they're harassed. Or, you know their birth is put down, and they don't get jobs. They don't get marriage. You know people actually say that they don't want to get married to them. You know they're just something on the side type of thing. And all those social meanings put on to um, you know the whole co- color and where they lie on that gradient um, has very very severe connotations I mean yeah for their life yeah and so our next interview is going to be with Sasha Sarago she well I'm going to be introducing her actually um, in the interview so let's just let's just play Coming to us today is Sasha Sarago editor and founder of Ascension magazine Australia's first indigenous and ethnic women's lifestyle magazine Sasha thank you for talking to us today thank you for having me um, so I wanted to ask you a few questions why did you start this magazine and what is the importance of it I started it because of the lack of representation of women of colour in this country. I also wanted to have a positive representation of us and inspire and emancipate women of colour. And often people think fashion is frivolous, but obviously you felt differently. Um, so tell me about the power of representation and how, what, how that manifests, um, the repercussions of the lack of visibility. Power of representation is important because it gives you your own voice. Um, You get to define yourself, your communities, whatever the topic is um, on your own terms. Fashion for so long has been seen, yes, as frivolous because it's from a Western standard. I've seen the change and the shift for people of colour who are in the fashion industry who are using that as an amazing, beautiful uh, mechanism to share their culture, um, how that could be in contemporary means. Uh, Also, educating and raising awareness of these beautiful cultures. Also, it sends a really important message of cultural appreciation and um, it, yeah, it stamps out cultural appropriation because it's like, this is from the people of that nation. This is their culture. So when you see cultural appropriation, you can identify it and view it as, okay, it is wrong. And also, when we talk about women of colour, obviously women of color's representation at the moment or visibility in the media at the moment is pretty substandard. And right now we exist through tropes. So could you talk me through some of those tropes and why they are dangerous for women of color? It sets up imagery or a mindset for us that we have to abide by it or that's what that's all that we are. It's, it shouldn't be that way. It's just the way of the world. Um, it, it conjures up feelings of displacement, um, it messes with our self-worth, and it also contributes to colorism. I don't know if a lot of people know, but this year alone, the industry or the colorism or uh, skin bleaching industry is $10 billion, and that's because it's been put upon us that there's a Western ideal of beauty, or the only way that we can be represented in fashion media advertising is being exotic or othered um, or... I don't know, sexual objects that are for the gratification of uh, Anglo-Saxon people, which is sad. So, yeah, that's the way that we're represented is um, damaging for women of colour. 
And coming back to the topic of visibility, I kind of want to twist the question a little bit. So how would that visibility, like ownership of our visibility, look like? It'll be authentic narratives, uh, imagery that we could relate to. There's spirit towards it. You get an insight into that community, that woman, her pain, her frustration, her beauty, her achievements. When you see something that's inspiring, you know it's raw, it's uncut, and it's a beautiful thing. And I just went on a tangent, so <laughs> um, I think it's really important for us to to be okay with ourselves and the way we represent ourselves. So mediums such as Ascension or um, other independent niche uh, publications or media, that's bringing the power back to us as communities. And I always put my hand up and advocate for you know the growth of new media because that's people of color or women of color's power to get their stories or perspectives out there that traditional media aren't doing. Um, so hopefully I've answered that question. <laughs> Thank you for talking to us. <laughs> that was Sasha Sarago from Ascension Magazine. And um, you're listening to the race card on Sin 90.7. And remember, you can get involved in all the discussions at the race card on Twitter. Find us on Twitter. We're active, pretty active. Poppy's tweeting away and uh, putting it all together. Uh, and, you know, Amina, um, that was an interesting interview. Uh, Sasha had a, a sl- slightly different point of view to how to tackle um, issues when it comes to beauty standards than, than Dura. Why don't you, just, I guess, elaborate on that? Yeah, um, so I think with Jure, Jure spoke about, you know, taking ownership in terms of, you know, autonomous groups and stuff like that and find that solidarity with women of color and celebrating themselves. Um, Sasha Sarago um, is really, really gracious and fascinating when I talk to her. Um, she obviously does it at a more institutional level by having a magazine and seeing ourselves represented. Um, the one thing that struck me was how do we how do we challenge this? And obviously not everyone's going to have that magazine. And Poppy, are you... Um, yeah yeah. so I was just thinking how do you challenge that representation because obviously it's not guaranteed that we can have our own magazine or anything like that or we're going to be in one how do you you know how do you how do you yeah just I think um it's a matter of changing people's public perception as well like getting used to having these diverse faces and not just being used to having you know the same people over and over again it's about being open-minded and I don't know yeah open-minded to to different things and like I think the public having the public perception first will um I guess like it'll just become the norm soon enough do you think there's um slightly a danger for for tokenism because um I think you you touched on that interview the idea of a trope the um, uh, face is kind of putting me off, but anyway, uh, <laughs> the uh, if you're not obviously this ready, you don't know. But Amina was doing a, a slightly mm, face, but anyway, we'll go on. Uh, um, yeah. If it's, it's sincere, I think that's fine. If it's you know tokenistic or if it's just having it for a, I guess an artificial reason, then I think there's that's there's a problem there. Yeah, and definitely probably just get in touch with like TV shows, get in touch with. You know all these magazines or institutions, and just let them know that you're not having it, and that's not cool. Definitely, and uh, I guess that is the show for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to 
find us on the podcast. Search us on iTunes. We're on iTunes now. Um, at the race card, just search in the race card or race card. Either one, I'm pretty sure will pop up. And if you are using Android phone, you uh, I suggest you download the Podcast Republic app, and you can find us using that app on the race card. All you know, you can just find us on Mixcloud, um, and that's Mixcloud forward slash Yusuf Ten. Which I'm gonna get the race card there because I'd already made their account. But anyway, uh, that is our show for this week, and that's me saying goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully you can come back again. Anyway, um, yep, that's our show. Hope you've enjoyed it. Um, And see you next week. Or hear me next week.